I'm Angela Kennecke, and this is Grieving Out Loud. Today, I'm sitting down with Susan Lynch. Susan is an award-winning professional dog trainer. For decades, she's known the importance of our furry friends, but she never could have predicted the role her dogs would play after her son died from a drug overdose. I felt so much judgment toward myself. You know, the thing with stigma is that there's so much judgment that goes around. There's the judgment of the person that died. There's the judgment of the family, you know, like what was wrong in that family. And then there's the person that's grieving that's judging themselves. I felt all three of those. I couldn't share the cause of death with anybody and I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody for two years. Susan was finally able to learn to live with the unthinkable and even share her story to hopefully save others. Thanks in part to the animals who have always depended on her. My dogs were the only ones I really felt 100% comfortable around because there's no judgment, right? No judgment, judgment. right. And that's what I felt that was such a big part of my grief was the judgment and the shame. And they were... We love you. We think you're wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grieving Out Loud. I started this podcast along with my charity, Emily's Hope, after my 21-year-old daughter, Emily, died from fentanyl poisoning. I hope by sharing my story, along with the stories of others, that we can raise awareness about our nation's devastating drug epidemic, get more people into treatment, and prevent others from ever experimenting with drugs to begin with. Susan, welcome to Grieving Out Loud. I am so grateful that you could join me. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. When I was learning a little bit more about you, I discovered you were a competitive dog trainer, which seems fascinating to me. How long have you been doing that? How did you get started? So I have been doing it since 1995, so quite a while. I grew up with golden retrievers and I always wanted one for a family pet. And I had started doing some work in the kids' schools when my kids were in elementary school and they needed to be therapy dog certified. So there was some training that went into that. And I just found I really loved it and just kind of continued with it. Golden retrievers are such an amazing breed, aren't they? They're just wonderful dogs. They're amazing. They're just so intuitive and were such a huge part of my healing process. I want to get to that, how they can be healing, but you were raising two boys and you live on the East Coast. And tell me a little bit about your sons and what life was like as they were growing up. They had a great childhood. We live in a small country town They would summer at Lake Winnipesaukee at my parents. They lived up there, which is a huge lake in the middle of the state. I live in New Hampshire. They played sports. They had a lot of friends. And yeah, it was pretty idyllic. Yeah, it sounds idyllic. And I think we think we're protecting our kids if we raise them in a great place like that, right? If we're a good parent and they're relatively safe and we don't think they're going to fall into the trap of using drugs. Absolutely. The population in our town is like 7,000. So it's pretty small. We have a lot of farms here and 
it's just everything about it says healthy. But as you know, you know, drugs find their way into every class and every kind of town. Yeah. I just spoke to students in a smaller community and I got the overarching sense that people in the community were more worried about once these kids left the town, which, you know, maybe they should be. But I said, hey, they're everywhere. They're right here, whether you think they are or not. Every small town, every community now, and with the danger in the drug supply, it's scarier than ever. But just the ease of access of drugs is out there. It's incredible. Yeah. So Kevin died in 2015, and it just seemed like it was one after the other. It seemed like every five months there was somebody else in our community that was dying. Well, let's talk about Kevin. Tell me about what kind of kid he was. So he was, he was very charming. He kind of came out that way. <laughs> he was funny. He had a lot of friends. He played sports as a little kid. He wrestled when he was in high school. And somewhere around, oh, I'd say somewhere around 17, he started smoking a lot of pot. He loved music. And he was really into like the Grateful Dead and the jam band scene and started going to music festivals over the weekends. And then he he did go to college. He went to school for a year and then he came home. And that was really when I saw some real depression. He felt his life was going nowhere and really struggled. He had a dead end job. And so those were some really hard years for him. When he was 17 and he started smoking weed, were you worried about that? Oh, absolutely. I was like, oh, God, Kevin, you reek. First of all, the smell just is everywhere. And, you know, it affected his attitude. He didn't care. And he was just like a lot of kids trying to self-medicate. What was he self-medicating for, do you think? He did not do well in school academically, he always struggled. And he was so well-liked and so social. And I kept saying, Kev, you don't understand what a gift that is. He used to go to these shows by himself just to meet people. Like, that's how open and friendly he was. And I said, Kev, you know, you don't realize what a gift that is. You know, maybe you could use that in communications or trying to, like, set him up and think of his life being productive. And he just could not see that for himself at all. Hmm. So he drops out of college. He comes and lives with you. His job isn't that great. He feels bad about himself and his life situation. Is that when he started using more than just marijuana or do you know? I didn't know. Yes, is the answer. He started using pills. And I remember hmm. thinking, I'm so glad he doesn't smell like pot anymore. That was what I remember. Like, oh, good. He's cleaning himself up. And I knew he was struggling with depression. But, you know, I thought, well, maybe he's coming off of using marijuana so frequently. But I had absolutely no idea that he was yeah. using pills. He had basically yeah, switched. He did, he yeah. Did switch. And I don't really know to the extent of how much he used. I found out after he died that this was when he started, but he lived with me from 2010 to 2014. And in 2014, he was like, mom, and he had been into some trouble. He had been arrested. 
for marijuana possession. And he said, mom, I, I got to start over. I want to move. I want to go to California. And I said, okay. He said, I want a fresh start. I have a job out there. I have a friend I can live with. And I said, okay, if you have any trouble out there, you know, you know, you can come home, we'll fly you. And he said, yep. And I said, you know, and I gave him my blessing because I wanted him to leave knowing that I was supporting him, like that I believed that he could turn his life around. So he went out to California in 2014. He was there for exactly 13 months when he died. Oh, and I bet that was kind of hard for you to let him go, especially all the way across the country like that, even though you wanted to be supportive internally. Were you struggling at all? Oh, absolutely. I was constantly micromanaging. I would be texting him, Kev, did you pay your Planet Fitness bill? And, you know, you're going to get a late fee. And I couldn't get out of that mode. So that was kind of me trying to, I don't know if it's over parenting or try to help him succeed. But yeah, it was stressful, especially on the days where I would call him and he didn't answer. So do you think once he got to California, his use actually got worse then? I can't know for sure. I did speak with one of his friends after he died at length, who also struggled with addiction. And he said he talked to Kevin almost every day. And he said he was not using while he was out there. He was clean. And he said, there's a way that they talk. You can hear it in the voice. And Kevin was really honest with him. So I believed his friend when he said that he was clean. And we saw Kevin twice. He came home for Christmas that year. And then we saw him in February. We, we went on a vacation to Costa Rica for 10 days. And he was wonderful. And I would never think that he was doing anything while he was there. So ultimately, what do you know happened? He went to a party with a friend of his. A friend came and picked him up. They drove down to the San Francisco area. They met up with another friend. So the three of them went to a party. They were drinking and they were smoking. They went back to the friend's apartment at about three in the morning, went to bed, and Kevin didn't wake up. Ah, at the so, friend's apartment. Yeah. So they woke up to him on the couch. The trauma that they had finding their friend was, I can't, I can't even imagine. But you got that call and you're thousands of miles more away. Well, yeah. So actually, I was on my way home from Ohio. I was driving home from Ohio. So it's a 14-hour drive. I had been in Ohio for a dog show, a week-long dog show. My plan was to drive to New York, stay overnight, and then finish the drive on Sunday. But as soon as I crossed into New York, I had a phone call. It was an unknown caller. I said, oh, I'm not going to answer that. I pulled into the rest area and I listened to the message that the unknown caller left. And it was a deputy in California telling me that Kevin had died. So I was still seven hours from home in a rest area by myself in New York. Hmm. So I drove home. I drove those seven hours home. Yeah. 
I know. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe you did that. Yeah. I got the news as I was getting into my car. I actually drove in the wrong direction. I mean, it's just, it's such a hard shock. Can't believe you made it home. Well, I tell people that I absolutely compartmentalized the whole thing. I did not let myself fall apart. I just kept it all in. I'm like, I gotta, I didn't have that luxury. I'm like, I got to get home. I have to get home. That's what I kept saying. And my husband kept calling me every 20 minutes and it was probably more like every 10 minutes, but it was, yeah, I ended up getting home at about 1230 at night. After arriving home, Susan traveled to California to find out more information about her son's death. The toxicology report revealed that Kevin had died from a combined drug intoxication, a mixture of alcohol and opiates. The actual report said alcohol, morphine, and codeine, and that it said 6 MAM present. I didn't know what any of that meant. I would later learn that that's how heroin breaks down in the body. That's all really I had to go on. I ordered the autopsy and read through that. They didn't find anything really crazy other than that. Right. An overdose. An opioid overdose. Susan's story is truly heartbreaking. Not only did she lose her youngest child, but she also had to deal with the harsh stigma that surrounds substance use disorder. According to World Health Organization research, addiction to illicit drugs is one of the most stigmatized conditions. That's why organizations like Emily's Hope are working hard to change that. We're sharing research that proves that addiction is a disease of the brain, and it can affect people from all walks of life, regardless of their race or social status. If you want to be part of this movement, check out our website at emilyshope.charity. Together, we can make a difference to end the stigma surrounding substance use disorder. While there's still a lot of work to be done, Susan agrees there's more awareness now than when Kevin died in 2015. It just wasn't in the news every day. Right. He died just before all the Narcan push was. So did you feel ashamed or afraid to talk about it at the time? Yes. I felt shame on a very deep level. First of all, I didn't know Kevin was using those kinds of drugs. So I was dealing with the death and the shock of how he died. And I felt so much judgment. The thing with stigma is that there's so much judgment that goes around. There's the judgment of the person that died. There's the judgment of the family, you know, like what was wrong in that family. And then there's the person that's grieving that's judging themselves. I felt all three of those. I couldn't share the cause of death with anybody. And I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anybody for two years. So two years. Three wow. Years. Yeah. That's a very long time. I totally get what you're saying because I thought my daughter was smoking weed and using Xanax, you know, pills and pot. And I thought she had a problem, but I didn't know she was using a stronger substance like heroin. I had no idea. So then I felt just dumb. Exactly. You're like, how can I not know this? I was his mother. Like, what, what does that make me? Like, does that make me a bad mom? So there was so many ways to be judged. And this was what was going on in my own mind, you know? 
but it is reality. So two years go by, you don't really talk about it. Did something change at some point? And if so, what was that? Yes. So because I wasn't sharing the cause of death, I was subjected to everybody's opinion on overdose, right? Because it was in the news all the time. And it, all it did was reinforce my shame. So I was like, just stuffing, stuffing, stuffing all of the anger and the resentment. And I couldn't even tell somebody my son died without them saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What happened? Like they wanted to get to those details. So I actually, two years after Kevin died, I started to look into becoming a affiliate leader for Helping Parents Heal, which is group for parents whose kids have died. And I wanted to get some media press, some newspaper to let people know that I was doing that. So I contacted a newspaper reporter and I asked her if she would do a feature on this parent support group. So she said, sure. So she came to my house. She was here for a couple of hours and I thought it went really well. And then at the end, she said, we never talked about how Kevin died. And I said, well, he died of multiple drug intoxication, but I don't want that printed because I haven't told my family. So she says, okay. And she leaves. And I forgot to ask her what issue it was going to be in. So I emailed her back and she sent me an email that said, well, I can appreciate what you're trying to do. Without the cause of death, it leaves a large and unacceptable hole in the story. She said, and without that, I can't print it. And I saw red. I was afraid of how angry I was. And I did what I normally do. I go in the woods and I take my dogs with me and I have this absolute meltdown. And I'm screaming and I was vibrating and I just said, to myself, why am I so mad? And immediately I had this image of Kevin's face on the front page of another newspaper from 10 years ago when he was arrested for underage drinking at a friend's house. And I thought, oh my God, I have been carrying this chip on my shoulder around for 10 years. And it, there was so many similarities between the stories. You know, they wanted that salacious detail. And I thought, I can either keep going the way I'm going, which is not working for me, or I can just tell people what happened. And I did. There was this huge weight that was lifted off my shoulders. I talked about it with my husband and... I went into it that if my parents or anybody felt differently about Kevin because of how he died, that was on them. Like I could not control it anymore. And that's really what I was trying to do. I was trying to control how he was going to be remembered. Oh, sure. That makes sense. And, you know, as a journalist, I do understand that reporter's perspective. People are going to want to know as they read the article, they're talking to this woman whose son died, what they're going to be asking is, well, how did he die? You know, as they read the article. And so then you're leaving the 
how that important question unanswered. And I doubt that the reporter was asking for salacious, I hope not, salacious reasons. Oh, no, this, um, is, this is where your yeah. mind goes, though. You know, yeah, this is where sure. your mind goes. And sure. I, in my mind, I thank her for what she did, because if she didn't do that, who knows? I may yeah. never have told anyone. So, so did she publish the article with his no. cause of death in it? No, she didn't. I, I wouldn't oh. give her permission. Oh, okay. But then following that is when you finally said, I'm just going to talk about it. And if people can't handle it, it's on them. Exactly. And what happened then after you did start talking about it? This would have been about 2017, probably, right? Yes, it was 2017. I kind of dragged it out. I talked to people individually, like my sister, my brother, my parents, because I wanted to practice telling the story because I had kept it for so long. And I wanted to pay attention to everybody's response, which they were all positive, very, very positive, very supportive. They felt bad that I had kept it in for so long. But I really needed to do that untangling of all those emotions. I needed to do that privately and really make it right in my own head before I could share it with somebody else. And then you not only talked about it, you went on to write a book about it, which was really talking about it and opening yourself up to everybody and many details of your story. What prompted you to write the book? I felt the kind of, I felt the push from Kevin and I had gone out to the Helping Parents Heal conference in 2018 and I had a reading with a medium, but she gave me some really amazing information and one of the things she said was Kevin was really pushing me to write a book. And then I had what came across my desk was writing through grief and trauma with David Kessler. Who, oh, sure. Yeah. So he's an amazing grief expert and it was so helpful. And then I started writing and I just said, I'm going to do it. And I'm so glad I did. It was so cathartic. The title of the book is Life After Kevin, A Mother's Search for Peace and the Golden Retrievers That Led the Way. So we're getting back to the dogs. Yeah. So I want to know, that is a unique title. So I want to know about the golden retrievers that led the way and what that means. So I credit them as being my first teachers. At the point where I got the call where Kevin died, I was traveling, you know, I was traveling around the country. I was showing I was competing. I had been a competitor most of my life. And we were training like five or six days a week. So they were training at really high levels. And from the time I got the call, they absolutely switched gears. When I was in the house, they were lying at my feet. They were quiet. They never pushed me to, you know, come on, let's go, let's go. Because, you know, these dogs were athletes. And then went from that to pretty much nothing. And I just couldn't believe the shift in their behavior. But when I took them out for a walk, they were present. They were having a good time. They were sniffing and wagging their tail and rolling and just the complete opposite. And I thought, they're just so balanced. And in my mind, I was like, that's what I want more of. And so they taught me that I can give my grief as much time as I need, as long as I need it, 
but I can also enjoy the good stuff that's right in front of me. So that was just this big lesson for me that put me on a path that was more of a healing path. And I can laugh when I find something funny and don't have to stay in a state of grief, a constant grief. It was such a gift. And that can be really hard because I think especially as a grieving mom, we think it's almost like a betrayal if you laugh or if there's some sort of joy in your life, because how can you laugh or have joy when your child is dead? Right. You know, I just think as a mother who's lost a child, we all, those of us who have, have felt that way. Absolutely. Yep. It was almost like they gave me permission. Like you can do both. You know, you can grieve, but you don't have to live there. And it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to embody that. But when I would take them out for a walk, I started to watch them. And, you know, they would be like sniffing and you'd be like, what are they looking at? You know, it was almost like a walking meditation. And it got me out of my head and into the moment. And it was, it, it was almost like a reset. We have these new habits that we want to have. We have to keep practicing and we have to keep going back and like retraining our brain. And that's what they did for me when I was on the walk. So I was constantly looking, what are the dogs doing? What are the dogs doing? I think it can be just very meditative to be out in nature with animals anyway. It's a great way to heal. And I think that just animals themselves can be incredibly healing. We adopted a pandemic puppy. So my daughter and I, then my daughter left to go back to college. So it's my puppy. I have an ease in 2020. And I've had lots of other dogs before. Actually, this is my second one that I have right now. But I have found that dog to be so incredibly healing to me. It's just more the affection, just excitement when you come home and companionship and always there right by my side. And I think animals can be incredibly healing for the grieving. Absolutely. I think that my dogs were the only ones I really felt 100% comfortable around because there's no judgment, yeah. right? No judgment, no judgment, right. And that's what I felt that was such a big part of my grief was the judgment and the shame. It was like just this lead, lead blanket on me. And they were, yeah. we love you. We think you're wonderful. And that was the message that I was getting from them all the time. It's hard because it's such a double whammy when you have stigma on top of the loss, right? Because you're already you've lost such an important part of you, your child, and they're gone. And then you have stigma on top of that. It's just, it's so troubling. It's such a complicating factor. It really is. Mm -hmm. And that's like a big part of my message is, and in yours, I'm sure as well, is, you know, what I want people to know what that stigma does to these families that are grieving. It's so horrible. I mean, I kept this a secret for two years because I didn't want people to judge me. I didn't want people to judge my son. That was more of the reason. I didn't want people to see him just because of how he died. And right. one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I wanted to humanize overdose. I wanted to give it a face. You know, I had a coworker say to me, because he didn't know that Kevin had died of an overdose. He, he said, oh, well, one more drug addict off the street. Mm. Horrible. That's horrible. Yeah. And by the time you finish with the book, you'll know who Kevin was as a person. 
And I don't have the grandiose idea that I'm going to change somebody's mind about overdose, but I'm certainly going to give you something to think about. And you mentioned that you saw a medium. So I was curious because I think a lot of parents in our position seek out anything. You know, it might be church. It might be just looking for answers, looking to what happens. Where did they go? What happens after you die? What do you think happens after we die? I think that they are just beyond a veil. I think they're very close to us. When I first went to a medium, I asked Kevin before I went, I said, Kev, I don't need you to tell me anything specific. I said, just let me know you're around. Just let me know you're close. You can hear me. And the key thing for me that this medium said was, she was so specific. She said, there's a very small piece of paper. It's very thin, like parchment paper, and it has very pertinent writing on it. And it's in the top drawer of the dresser in the bedroom. And I was like, okay, that's very specific, right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I had been through Kevin's room. I had searched high and low. I had no idea what she was talking about. And she was like, she was completely like, she kept doing like rubbing her fingers together. She said, it's very thin. It's like parchment paper. And I have the recording of it. So I didn't know what she was talking about. I went through Kevin's room again. I listened to the recording and I said, she didn't say what bedroom. And I immediately knew I have a tall dresser. I have a thin, tall dresser in my bedroom. And I went flying in there. And in the top drawer, there was a little piece of parchment paper. It was like a fortune cookie, but it was like a piece of chocolate. And it said, I used to admire intelligent people. Now I admire kind people. And it was just a quote from like the 1800s or something. And I thought, oh, he's around. He heard me. Because I didn't even know that piece of paper was there. I had put that in there eight months prior. And he knew it was there. And he was able to give her all the directions. So that really opened my mind to signs. And I had a huge sign from him the day after the services. What was that? I had said to Kevin before at the funeral, you need to let me know you're okay. I didn't ask him. I told him I was in like total mom mode. I'm like, you have to let me know. So the next day, all the stuff is done, right? All the services, because that's like a busying thing too, right? And then it's like, mm -hmm. okay, what now? So my husband and I, I said, let's take the dogs for a walk. It was Columbus Day weekend. It was beautiful. It was like 70 degrees out. We have lots of trails. We have 85 miles of trails within 15 minutes of my mm -hmm. house. Yeah. So I picked a particular trail that was flat and easy because I didn't have a lot of energy. And I said, I want to take Kevin's friendly nature with us because normally I'm, I'm not, I don't let my dogs interact with other dogs because they say they're friendly and then they're not friendly. So I said, I want to keep Kevin's open mind and friendly nature. So we go on this trail. It was like about a 40 minute walk. I had stopped to talk to this couple that went well and we're heading out and we're almost back to the car and this woman, her mom 
So she was like, you know, my age and then her mother, so like the grandmother. And then they had two kids, a boy and a girl, and they were about 10 years old with them. And they had this boxer, this boxer mix. And he was like on the end of his leash. He was like pulling, 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 couldn't wait to get to us. And I thought, okay, here we go, you know. And so they get to us and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be friendly like Kevin. We start talking and, you know, I'm trying to make sure that the dogs aren't getting all tangled up and we're getting ready to say goodbye. The woman says, okay, Kevin, let's go. And I thought, you know, when you hear your child's name and you're like, oh my God, what did she just say? So I turned around and I looked at her and I thought she was going to be looking at her son, but she was looking at her dog. The dog's name was Kevin? The dog's yeah. name Kevin. And she said, let's go, Kev. And I was like, oh my goodness. So, you know, because we told her and she started crying. And I was like smiling and crying at the same time because if you knew Kevin, I mean, he was so funny and he loved dogs. And it was so in character. Like, I, I told you I'd let you know I was fine. It was like, boom, how'd you like that? So. <laughs> Have you lost a loved one to overdose or fentanyl poisoning? I'd like to invite you to share their story on our new Emily's Hope Memorial website called More Than Just a Number. They were our children, siblings, cousins, husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, and friends. So much more than just a number. You can submit a memorial today on morethanjustanumber.org. Do you feel... Eight years later, has it been eight years since Kevin died? It'll be eight years, October 3rd. October 3rd. Yeah. Do you still get signs? Do you feel him close to you? Absolutely. When I decided I was going to write this book, I said I want it to come out October 3rd because that would be the seventh anniversary of his death. And I wanted to create something positive, almost normally the saddest day on the calendar for me. So I was writing a blog and I went on the national day list to see if I could have like any additional links that I could talk about. And I started scrolling through October and I didn't have to get very far because it was October 3rd. And October 3rd is in fact National Kevin Day. Really? That's pretty amazing. That I love that. Amazing. Yeah. So I was like, I started laughing and I'm like, of course it's National Kevin Day, right? Because Kevin was, you know, he loved to be the center of attention and so I was like, okay, there's my blessing from him. But yeah, I get signs from him all the time. Do you think it's changed? I feel like the first year after Emily died, I felt like year or two, the signs were more pronounced. I just feel like it changes as time goes by. Maybe I, I don't know how to exactly explain that. I feel like Kevin just guides me all the time. So I've, I do feel like mm -hmm. he's with me all the time. And I think that for me, I don't need them anymore. In the beginning, mm. I needed them, mm -hmm. absolutely needed them. It was so important to me to hear from him, you know, because I was missing him so much. But now it's like I know he's close by. I know I can get there in my mind if I sit in a quiet in his room. I sit a lot in his room and I'll meditate and I just kind of invite him in and just kind of sit there and I make time for him. So I guess that it has shifted a little bit 
I don't get the Kevin the dog's stories. Yeah. yeah. But I, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. do get, I, but I do get like little nudges. And if something comes across my desk that's like, you know, really helpful to me, I'll be like, oh, thanks, Kev. We have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast who may be very new in this grief journey. What advice do you have for them? Sit, sit with your grief, make time for your grief. It's just the hardest thing to do. But you know what? There is no way around it. It is going to be there. It's going to pop up. And I found that because I was hiding so much, I felt the only way that I could cry was to go in his room, close the door and just cry because I was holding everything in all the time. And our society is just so bad at grief. And yes, yes, know, they are. They're just <laughs> awful. We are in general. Yeah. Collectively, we, yes. We don't have time for it. Move on. Right. Go back to work. Yeah. Back all work. those things. Right. Yeah. But our child died. That's a really big deal. And it needs attention. And so I would go in his room. I used to like literally schedule time. I would go in his room and I would sit there and sometimes I would just cry. Sometimes I would journal. I would always talk to him. And when I was felt like I was ready, I would come out. And I feel like it did a few things. It got stuff out, right? And it created room for me to do something else. And I found that mm. by doing that, I was less blindsided by my grief. So that would be my number one thing that I did that was helpful. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you for sharing your story, Kevin's story, for writing the book. We're going to put a link to the book in the show notes. So I just really appreciate this chance to meet you and to get to know you and your story better. Thank you. Thank you. It was great being here. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Grieving Out Loud. We hope this conversation has provided you with comfort, support, and valuable information. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with friends and family. By doing so, you can help us reach more people who may be struggling and provide them with resources they need. Thank you again. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. This podcast is produced by Casey Wannenberg King and Anna Fye.